0: Tennessee Court Talk is a podcast presented by the Tennessee Supreme Court, Administrative Office of the Courts. The aim of the podcast is to improve the administration of justice in state courts through education and understanding. The target audience varies and is announced in the beginning of each episode. Welcome to Tennessee Court Talk.
1: I'm your host, Barbara Peck. Today's podcast is different from what we normally do. Recently, we attended an event at Lipscomb University with the three former and the three current female justices of the Tennessee Supreme Court. The conversation was enlightening and lively and it stands for itself. Thank you to Lipscomb University and Professor Randy Spivey for organizing this amazing event and for allowing us to record it. The recording featured in this podcast is from the afternoon panel for students and features the justices journeys to a career in law, changes they have witnessed, and advice to students, among other topics. The evening session is a separate podcast. In this discussion, you will hear from former Justice Judge Martha Sissy Craig Daughtry, who is currently a senior judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, former Justice Penny White, who is now a professor at the University of Tennessee College of Law, former Justice Janice Holder, who practices in Memphis, and the court's three current female justices, Justice Connie Clark, Justice Sharon Lee, and Justice Holly Kirby. This panel is moderated by Kimberly McCall and Lipscomb University students. We hope you enjoy it.
2: Hello and welcome to everyone in attendance today. And I also thank each of you for being here today for this panel. Uh, As we begin, I want to tell you that I actually have three students here that are going to be joining me today and moderating this panel. I really wanted students here from Lipscomb to have a chance to ask questions and contribute to the questions that we ask of the six justices who've served on the Tennessee Supreme Court. And also, just to let you know, as we proceed, we will be directing questions to the uh, particular members of the panel. Um, but of course, I hope that any panelist that wants to jump in uh, will do so. So our first question is for everyone, and uh, we'll start over here with Justice Lee and work our way across. But our first question is, why did you decide to go into the legal profession?
3: I don't have the best answer for that because I, uh, or the, the answer you might be expecting, let me say, because I backed into it. I was, uh, an accounting major, and I got ready to graduate, and I thought, I don't want to be an accountant. I've got to figure out how to stay in school longer till I decide what I want to do. Uh, And I'd already been a pre-med major, and I hated hospitals and sick people and all that stuff. So (laughs) I thought, you know, I might, maybe I'll go to law school. So I applied, I got in, my parents were very happy, so I got three more years in school, Um, and I loved it and I knew I'd made the right choice. But I sort of backed into it. It was not a lifelong ambition. Uh, although I had, I'd had i always enjoyed courts and lawyers. I grew up in a family with a lawyer, and my mom was a clerk in, in the court. So I'd been around courts mostly all my life. But I'd never seen any women lawyers, or certainly any women judges. So I don't think I, because I couldn't see it, I couldn't really believe it. So I think that's what held me back from pursuing that initially. So it's sort of a default position on my part.
2: Right, Professor Wright.
4: I share with uh, Justice Lee the desire not to, or the inability to be in the medical profession. And my mother wanted me to be a nurse. Uh, no one in my mother or father's family had ever gone to college, and they had fairly large families. So I knew I wanted to be a professional, but I knew nursing, I wasn't cut out. Uh, my, my green and candy stropper days prove that. (laughs) So so, um, I moved in the eighth grade to another school, very different, very lonely, and I had a coach who was a teacher. His name was Roger Heron, and um, I can't put the exact phrase on it except that Roger Heron inspired me that if I wanted to be committed to public service. If I wanted to be a professional, I could do it despite the fact that no that I'd never seen a lawyer uh, or a judge. So I, I attribute a lot of it to him. And then um, you know as as un uh, credentialed as East Tennessee State University is, the faculty and administration of that university embraced me and suggested to me that I could do anything I wanted to do. So all of those undergraduate professors played a a role in it as well. And I hate to admit, Perry Mason. Uh, If you've never heard of Perry Mason, go back and watch Perry Mason, because I was a real Perry Mason fan.
5: Well, I was on track to become a history teacher. uh, And um, I was studying history at Vanderbilt and about the, I was in my uh, junior year uh, in an honors program, six hours of honors work my junior year, and 12 hours of honors work my senior year. Uh, and one of the courses I was taking um, at the time was a thing called historiography, which is sort of the philosophy of history and how history is written. And um, so for. For our topics, our, the, the themes that we had to write, the essays we had to write that semester, we picked slips of paper uh, out of a, I think it was a shoebox. I do have a little trouble remembering, and the professor's gone, so uh, that's the best I can say. And I opened up my little slip and it said, what is the different, what is the origin of the, um, of, of the, of the rule separate but equal? Um, And instead of being up to my eyeballs in the joint university library, (laughs) I took off for the law school, and it was pretty amazing. Uh, I was 20 or 21 years old. Um, The place was full of men my age. Uh, I was unattached at the time. It looked like it might be interesting in this (laughs) law library. of course, by the time I got to law school, I was married. And <laughs> <laughs> sometime after my first year, I had a baby. We all married young back then. Um, it, it's a phenomenon not known to anyone today. Anyway, when I found out that the professor who was my honors professor was going on sabbatical and wanted to turn me over to the Italian Renaissance man, I got to thinking a little more about what I had seen down there in the law, law library. <laughs> and how that whole thing had gone. Because history, you start someplace, and you move forward. And trying to figure out the doctrine of separate but equal, I went to the case, uh, which which dated to uh, 1896, and went backwards, Plessy versus Ferguson, those of you who, who know the case. And instead of going forward, it went backward. And I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, so I... Uh, m- did some struggling to get my um, hours in order and uh, became a member of the last class that was able to start law school a year early. So I didn't spend 12 honor years studying Italian Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, I went to law school. Um, you may have heard a Professor Spivey talk about three women in the class. In fact, there was a quota and the maximum of women in any class was three Um, so um, i guess it was lucky i
2: made it in thank you justice holder
6: i think you're going to hear a a theme going on here Um, i intended to be an experimental psychologist and i even have a little publication that was as a joint publication when i was at the university of pittsburgh but I applied to all these wonderful graduate schools, and educational testing service, forgot to send my scores to them. So I was rejected at all these wonderful graduate schools to which I applied, and so I had to sit out a year. So as I was sitting out that year, I started rethinking my decision to be an experimental psychologist and decided that maybe that wasn't what I wanted to do, so I applied to the following. Pan American Airways to be a flight attendant, Paralegal School in Philadelphia, University of Pittsburgh to get a degree, an advanced degree in French, for my uh, teaching certificate as well. I applied to one law school, Duquesne, and I got accepted at everything I applied to. And so I decided, well, you know, I might as well just try law school. And if I don't like it, then I just will do something else. And the whole year that I was, first year I was in law school, Pan American Airways called me and wanted to know if I was done with this and whether I was ready to come and work for them. (laughs) So I ended up going to law school, and um, that's how I got there. And I didn't really like it that much. (laughs) And the first semester when I got 1C, plus in a course that I knew very well. And an A in a course I didn't know very well, I decided I would never look at my grades again. So I didn't until I graduated. And that was my illustrious
7: legal career at Duquesne Law School. Well, uh, Justice Holder and everybody before me is right. I, too, was a defaulter. I uh, did not grow up in a family of lawyers. I was the first person in my family to complete college. I always wanted to be a teacher. I'd never seen a woman lawyer, but I uh, had gotten valuable support from teachers along the way. And so I got a teaching certificate and returned to Atlanta, where my family was living at the time, and became a high school history teacher. I'd studied history at Vanderbilt, just as Justice Daughtry did. Um, and, And that was my career, and I planned to stay in it. But I was also in, I taught American history and political science. And I was always interested in political science and politics as a study. It is harder now to say I love politics, um, but I could say that more easily back then. And so I became, uh, soon after I moved there, there was an interesting. Congressional race going on in Atlanta, and I decided to volunteer for one of the candidates. And after school every day, I would go down to their office, and what you did as a volunteer then were literally stuff things in envelopes and lick the envelopes. Uh, We didn't have the internet then, and there weren't many other ways to communicate. But what happened was the people who were running that campaign were young and idealistic. Some of them were preachers. And some of them were lawyers. And if you just sat in, in the room where they were talking and working, they would talk about how they hoped this candidate and what they were doing would change the world. Um, and I bought into that concept and that ideal. It, it was exciting, and it was exhilarating. And particularly, the lawyers I knew were using their, the legal skills that they had learned to both advance their ideas there, but also in other places and other things that they were doing in that um, unusual time. And I decided I really had to go to law school. Um, and so, uh, as a teacher, I wasn't making much money. I made up my mind. I worked for several more years to save up some money. My parents, when I mentioned this to them, said, You know, we sent you, we helped you get through undergraduate school, and we helped you get through graduate school. And, and we're so happy you want to keep going to school, but you're going to have to figure out how to do this one on your own. Uh, and so I did. I came back to Vanderbilt to law school and got a job on campus as a dormitory head resident, uh, spending sometimes Saturday nights in the emergency room with some of my the young women I was responsible for uh, and worked my way through. But I was right, and although I didn't like the first semester very much either, I knew from the beginning that that was a good choice and that that it was going to lead me to really interesting things in the rest of my life.
8: Well, I'm the (laughs) (laughs) one-off, which sounds unexpected since, as Professor Spivey mentioned, I majored in mechanical engineering. I actually uh, grew up in a family with no money, my mom was a secretary, my dad was a traveling salesman. I had never met a lawyer in my life. Certainly not a judge. Um, But I knew early on that I wanted to go to law school, um, that I wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, in fact, I knew that before I knew what I was gonna major in in undergraduate school. But I knew that uh, because of my parents' financial situation, uh, paying for college and paying for law school would be on me. So uh, uh, in going to undergraduate school, at that point, they have very few women in engineering. I was good at science and math, and they gave me a very nice scholarship. So I said, I believe I'll major in engineering. (laughs) And when uh, my friends for their um, elective courses were taking basket weaving or something fun like that, I was, I was taking the hardest pre-law writing courses so that I could, in addition to the engineering, learn how to write. Um, but I felt like um, when I got out of undergraduate school, I would have to save up for law school. And I wasn't sure that I would be able to do that with uh, uh, A degree that didn't land you an immediate uh, well-paying job. As it turned out I ended up getting a very good scholarship to law school and never practiced engineering Um, but as soon as I got to law school even taking the LSAT I knew that it was a fit. I knew that these were my people and uh, that it would be something that I would enjoy and it turned out to be true. Thank you.
2: At this time, I'm going to hand it over to our student moderator, Mimi Vance.
0: My name is Mimi Vance, and I'm a Law, Justice, and Society major and political science minor from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, My first question is for Justice Holder and Justice Kirby. As a woman in the legal profession and as a woman who has served on our state's highest court, What is something that's happened over the course of your career that might surprise all of us sitting here today in 2020? You
6: first. There are many things. (laughs) (laughs) Some of which I can tell you and some of which I can't. Um, I think what I I would say to you is that as much that has changed, still things remain the same in a lot of ways. I am, on one hand, I'm surprised when I walk into a room and the plaintiff and the defendant are female, the attorney for the plaintiff is female, the attorney for the defendant is female, and I'm female. And to me, that's great progress because just the sheer numbers are staggering. On the other hand, I can walk into a room as I did last week and have... A receptionist asked me if I'm the court reporter. So we've made great strides, but I also think that there are things that we still have to do and still be aware of to raise the level of consciousness about diversity and inclusivity, and we just have to continue to do it. We can't rest on our laurels and believe that everything has been taken care of.
8: Um, I would say one thing that has been surprising to me is uh, the many different forms that my mentors have taken. Uh, Some you would expect. uh, One, a a woman in Tennessee who is a pioneer, a giant on the legal landscape, Judge Julia Gibbons. But another, a rather short Jewish lawyer who was a partner in my former law firm, Jeff Bibleman. Um, uh, mentors come in many, many different sizes, and uh, that includes men. So I want the women in, uh, in this room to remember uh, that there are good men out there, and they will support you along the way.
0: Thank you. Our next question is for Professor White and Justice Holder. Looking back, have there been moments that you had to overcome certain fears or trepidation to press on into the next stage of your career? If so, how did you overcome those fears? okay. Um, Yes, when
6: I applied for the Supreme Court, um, I had to file a lawsuit to be considered. And that was like walking off a cliff because, um, and Justice White knows well the the legal history behind all of it, but um, at a time after the retention election that Justice White was involved in, there was a special Supreme Court, and the special Supreme Court opined somewhere along the way, as as some of us had already applied for the position, that that seat could only be filled by people from East Tennessee. And so, the same person who is Justice Kirby's mentor, Jeff Feibelman, filed a lawsuit for me uh, challenging that decision. So, he's also my mentor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was, I remember when we did it, and I remember thinking, I don't know what I've done, I don't know what I'm getting into, but it felt very, very strange. And um, he went on to be successful in, in this position. And I was allowed to apply from the West, and uh, I was ultimately chosen by the governor.
4: Well, Justice Holder's uh, lawsuit was preceded by my defeat. I share the distinction of being the only judge in the state of Tennessee's history on the Supreme Court to lose to nobody. In other words, the public preferred anything but me, okay? So that's how I got kicked off the Supreme Court. Uh, so, yes, I... Uh, the question is um, have there been have I had to overcome fears my reaction to that was to decide I never wanted to step foot inside another courtroom and represent another client for fear that the anger and hatred that had been extended to me would hurt my clients and so um, I hate to admit it but the first thing I did was leave the state and I did that I, I had the grace of God and and mentors who got me teaching positions at uh, a top 10 law school, and then at two not top 10 law schools, but I taught in Virginia, West Virginia, and Colorado. So I moved on, I guess is one way to say it, and I got some distance. So I guess one way to express how to react to fears, I got some distance from it and tried to acquire some objectivity. But I think rather than than, using that inarticulate way to express it i would like to borrow from pat summit and say the the best way i know is is to stare fear in the face but also left foot right foot breathe just take one tiny little baby step at a time until you can take a larger step Uh, and 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 so that is basically um, the way that i feel that i managed to survive what was a really public and horrific Public and personal loss.
5: I have to say something. about that. <laughs> um, that was really tragic uh, and completely uh, undeserved. Um, and uh, there is a story behind it. Uh, and there were. It was a story that uh, just was not fair at all. I mean, it was. It was. Uh, fabricated. It was manufactured. It was pretty terrible. And those of us who knew Penny, uh, loved Penny, uh, many of us felt really sad about it. And then the rest of us felt mad as hell about the whole thing. <laughs> um, and it sort of, which, I mean, I've, I knew about this question about have I had to overcome fears. The thing that I had to deal with for so many years Probably two decades wasn't fear, but anger, mm-hmm. and that's really uh, difficult. And what happened <laughs> to you didn't help. And you know, <laughs> say that.
0: Thank you all so much. Um, now I'm happy to pass the podium to my fellow student moderator, May Hartness.
9: Hello, my name is May Hartness, and I'm a junior law, justice, and society major with an urban studies minor from Chattanooga, Tennessee. So, this next question is for Justice White and Justice Lee. How do you think the Me Too movement and other similar movements have affected or are affecting the legal profession?
3: I know. <laughs> I, that's what I was just thinking. I had really great answers for all the rest, but this one I didn't. I think there is a greater awareness of boundaries because of the Me Too movement, I don't know how long that will last. I, I have a, f- I, I I worry that it it's a big issue now, and then it's going to subside, and then it's going to be like it was. So, I think there's greater awareness, but I question whether there will be any permanent change. You're nodding, Judge Daltrey. Do you agree no, with I, that? No,
5: I'm just sorry about that. I'll yeah, I'm no, angry about uh, that
3: too. Yeah, it's it's um it is a very when you hear the stories it's it's very unfortunate. I know as a young lawyer I I think there because I was the only woman in my area, I tried really hard to fit in and you just kind of kept your head down, you tried not to create drama. Uh, and there were some comments made to me and you know I just sort of ignored them. But I know my daughter is a is a you know, I mean I would have stood my ground, but I, I just sort of acted like I didn't hear it or just, you know, but my daughter is a lawyer in South Carolina, and and she she called one day to tell me about a remark that was made in her presence, and I was so proud. She didn't just, you know, pretend she didn't hear it. She's kind of like, that's not true. That didn't happen. Don't you dare do that. You know, she really stood up for herself, and that that told me a lot about where as a profession, women in the profession have come. Because I couldn't have, maybe I could have done it, but I had to, I tried so hard to fit in. Uh, and You didn't want to be branded as, you know, one of those crazy women lawyers. You just really, I don't know if it's true for everybody else, but you just tried to fit in. Uh, But stand your ground when you needed to. Um, So I'm hoping it's a permanent change, but I don't have total confidence in that
4: as I thought about it I was just going to say that the profession is just a smaller segment of society and so the impact is reflective of that uh, in in some way and I don't want to be one of those people who changes the question so I have a, a more interesting response but I've I unfortunately have seen some things as a professor still I mean in 2020 and 2019 that causes me concern uh, in the profession, still the treatment of women, but more more prominently the the treatment of minorities and 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 in particular Hispanics and people of color I've had students stopped because but, uh, and mistreated uh, lawyers because of how they looked i've got my best friend is an African American woman who when she goes to a jail in a neighboring Uh, County still has to deal with racial prejudices. So, you know, so I love the fact that Me Too has brought attention to one level of horrific discrimination in our society, but there are so many um, still unequal treatments. still people who think that separate but equal equal is a way of life, so so I think the better uh, response would be let's hope that the legal profession continues to mount challenges, and that's, that's one positive thing I would take from the Me Too movement, that lawyers are now more likely to take a case that they might otherwise not have been um, only because of it might have been too financially difficult to succeed, so maybe that's opening the eyes of jurors, judges, Um, and business leaders.
9: Thank you so much. Our next question is for Judge Daughtry and Justice Clark. One of the great fractures in the women's suffrage movement was a disconnect between the white women's suffrage movement and the African American women's suffrage movement. We also recognize that still today, 100 years later, the Tennessee Supreme Court as well as the United States Supreme Court has not had an African-American woman appointed to it. Would you like to comment? Go ahead. Um,
7: Well, I certainly would like to comment. And I could could probably comment for a long time. Um, And I really hear you asking two questions. So in, in very brief fashion, I'll try to address each one. There is no doubt that the history of the women's suffrage movement uh, contains conflicts, political and otherwise. Uh, although men had, uh, African American men had theoretically been granted the right to vote after the Civil War and the 15th Amendment, effectively they were not given the right to vote and even into the early 1920s and much later than that, uh, the great majority of African American men in this country could not effectively vote without literally running risks that might include death. Uh, so wh- white women, who were for suffrage for everyone, but they also recognized that among their white male um, counterparts, there was some suspicion about what's going to happen if suddenly African-American women get the right to vote. And, and that made it more difficult to be together, and the, the campaigns did not all the time run parallel, and there were issues that were different for both of those groups of women. Um, and and the, the success on the day that the Tennessee legislature ratified the, 30, uh, the 19th Amendment and became the 36th state to do so was still in part dampened by the understanding that, in fact, the real right to vote was not effectively being granted everywhere. Um, that's a problem. And it, it, it has improved, but it's still a problem today. Uh, But coming back to now and to looking at the fact that there has not yet been an African-American woman serve on the Supreme Court, that's true. There was not an African-American woman serving in a trial court level or above anywhere until 1994, which may seem a long time ago to you all who are, are younger, but does not seem very long ago to me. And we've had exactly we've had six women serve on the Tennessee Supreme Court starting in 1990. But remember, our state was formed in 1796. We've had two African American men. Uh, one was appointed in 1980, uh, but didn't actually win his election. Um, and the other was appointed in 1993 and served with distinction, including a term as Chief Justice. And that was Justice A. a. Birch Jr. Uh, until his retirement in 2006. But those numbers too don't reflect the actual diversity of our state. We talk a lot whenever any when it, whenever it's the current court or any group of these women, and and we've never done this as six before, but we've done it together in other settings. We talk a lot about the importance of diversity on the court, diversity of all kinds, where you come from in Tennessee or other states, uh, where you grew up, the kind of schools that you went to, all of the practices. Uh, the practice that you've had, and all of those things. And all of those are important. And they certainly include gender diversity. But they also include um, ethnic and racial diversity. And we don't have that now. And we don't have that, have not had that, yet uh, even in the same numbers that we've experienced in women coming to the court. So I think all of us should be uh, ashamed of that and, and worried about that and do what we can and encourage those. In Tennessee, currently, there is a selection commission who considers candidates, and and it's the governor who appoints out of term. um, And that's usually the way appellate judges get uh, selected. Uh, We've got to encourage the importance of diversity of all kinds. My goal is, uh, it should be, to get to the point where I can't remember the numbers anymore because we are thoroughly diverse. And we're certainly not going to. uh, when I retire I don't it shouldn't automatically be another Caucasian woman of my age who gets selected. It might be somebody from a different place in the state, uh, a different age and a lot of different uh, kinds of background but it, uh, we also have to continue to look um, so that when the five of us current justices sit together, we look like the state of Tennessee. Thank you
5: Well I come from a day and age when uh, it was possible to be, if you were female, the only woman in a room uh, of white men, um, or if you were an African American man, the only uh, person of color in a room uh, full of white men. So, the, it, it is not perfect. More needs to be done, but, but I, I can look around here and tell you that, uh, that progress uh, has been made. The problem with the suffrage movement was uh, they needed uh, 36 states, and at the point where it, where the rubber hit the road, uh, there were 35 states that had ra- had ratified, uh, two that hadn't voted, and that was Tennessee and North Carolina, and the rest had rejected mm-hmm. uh, the 19th Amendment, and most of those. Re- Jackson rejections were south of here uh, and the uh, anti-suffragists came up with a, a way they thought they could keep Tennessee and North Carolina from ratifying and that was to say save the south. So there were banners all over uh, by uh, anti-suffragists who were also segregationists and uh, had deep and abiding uh, racial animus. and. Uh, and that was the, it was an attempt uh, to really to poison the whole thing by coming up with this Save the South business. Um, fortunately, Tennessee <laughs> didn't fall for that. Uh, it, it's really a story. Uh, it almost didn't happen. I guess you all know about Harry Byrne, who ended up changing his vote because his mama wrote him a letter saying You'd be a good boy. I mean, how close to failure did we come? It was one vote. And I love to talk to people about that occurrence, because if you ever think that one person can't make a difference, uh, think of Harry Byrne, because it's it's an outrageously wonderful story.
9: Thank you both so much. Our next question is for Justice Lee and Justice Kirby. How do you care for yourself outside of work?
3: Um, the focus on work-life balance is fairly new and I'm really glad to see it. I think when I was coming along, we, we never thought about it. It's something, I think, it, um, it, it's a constant struggle. Uh, I, I don't think it's something you just get your life in balance and then you just forget about it. It's, a, it's an everyday thing. Um, the best an- analogy I can give for that is think of your life as a four burner stove you know the gas burners uh, one is you one is your career one's your family one's your friends and it's really important to keep all four burners on and burning but not outrageously you know burning on high and so at some points your career is going to be way way high and you're going to shut down your yourself or your family or your friends but it's just important to always sort of Put that in your mind and try to visualize your stove and see if all your your eyes are burning at an appropriate level. I think the way I do that is one to be aware of the need for work life balance, Um, stay connected with family. You know, nothing nothing will humble you more than you know your kids saying, "Why is it dinner ready?" or "Why is this burned?" or "Why don't I have clean clothes?" That will you know when you're in court all day and everybody's, Your Honor, Your Honor, and then you go home and. You're just a mess with, with things. That <laughs> brings you down to, to, uh, to, to real life. Um, you know, stay active. Do some form of physical exercise because what we, what we do is very sedentary work. Um, I read a lot. Um, I just try to do things when I'm not at work to get my mind off of it. Uh, but that's hard. It's hard to shut it down. But I think it's really important that you, uh, you, you have those boundaries and that you stay connected uh, with your relationships, because at the end of the day, that's what is going to carry you through. You can have all these great career accomplishments, but if you don't have solid family relationships and with friends, then your life's going to be very empty, and those accomplishments are not going to amount to very much. So I don't know that I do it very well. I, I, I try, uh, but some days I'll, I do it, and some days I don't. So it's a constant struggle.
8: know that I've been the best role model in that (laughs) sense until pretty recently. Uh, When I was uh, appointed to the Court of Appeals, um, I was a mother of young children, and for much of the time on the Court of Appeals, I was a single mother, Um, so there was not a lot of work-life balance. But um, to Justice Lee's point, um, uh, I did find that the even though children are demanding, when I wasn't actually doing judging work, um, one replenished me for the other. I was so glad to be at work, (laughs) um, and be away from the demands of my children for a while, but then when I came home, I couldn't wait to see them. Um, And uh, loved the mothering part of what I did, But then when it was time to go to work I was replenished and uh, it felt great to do that. Um, Doing things that are completely away from work, uh, whether it's recreational or not, is good for the soul and balancing in and of itself. Now I'm more purposeful about it. My children are grown and Uh, I'm able to better focus on myself, on taking care of my body, on uh, purposefully, methodically keeping in touch with friends and with family Um, and that there's a wholeness to you about that that makes you so much better at your work and especially for judges. Much of what we do um, is really isolated from real people. Um, we're reading records, we're writing opinions. So it's much more important to, be, to have a full life and to uh, have a, a, a full range of friends and family and life experiences that you bring to those cases so that you, um, the cases don't become legal problems, they are real people and you've encountered things in your life that you bring to those cases and a wisdom that um, doesn't come to anybody who is a workaholic and only focuses on their work.
9: Thank you. Thank you all so much. It's now my pleasure to pass the podium off to my friend and fellow student, Jayla. Hello, I'm Jayla Williams. I'm a junior LGS major with a minor in international studies. And it's my honor to be up here with you guys. Um, Justice Lee, I have noticed that you have an active social media account. um, And I was wondering why you have made a decision to engage in social media.
3: I I, um developed a social media presence because of the 2014 retention election that Justice Clark and I were involved in. Um, I had a consultant who set up a Facebook account that rolled over onto Twitter and I would post uh, where all these places I was going campaigning and it was kind of fun just to let people know what what I was doing. I was working hard and so they would work hard for me. Uh, And then after the election I thought, well, you know, I hate to shut these down. This has been a good way to connect. And also realized that the rollover to, from Facebook to Twitter was not good because you don't say the same things on Facebook, right? That you do on Twitter. It's really <laughs> lame when you do that. So I was lame for a while. But then I pretty well—I uh, don't do a lot on Facebook except, you know, follow friends from home and see who who's died, who's had kids, who, whatever—all this stuff that goes on in a small town. Uh, but I have kept my Twitter. Uh, handle. And if you don't follow me on Twitter, you should follow me. Um, I, I tweet good things. I, I think it's a great way to connect with people, uh, to connect with law students, young lawyers, people across the state. Um, it's, it's a civics education. I try to, uh, for example, this afternoon I tweeted, you know, here's the link to the our docket. We have court tomorrow here in Nashville. Here's the docket. If, you know, it's your court. Uh, if you can't be there and you're interested, uh, we post, you know, uh, the videos online. You can see them in a day or two. Um, when we swear in you lawyers, I always tweet about that and try to put some pictures there. So it's a way to highlight people who are doing really good things, interesting things, um, a way to talk about the good things the court does. I'm gonna, I tweeted already about the program tonight. Uh, and and uh, so it's just a way to communicate that's separate uh, from the official court communications, and I think it uh, it humanizes me as a judge. I I tweet about my grandchildren. I have two four-year-old granddaughters, and I have made them little black robes with lace collars, and they dress up like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I tweeted that. That That was popular. I tweeted about, you know, a picture of my Boat dock and, you know, sunset on the lake or whatever, just a nice little feel-good picture. So I do, I don't tweet about anything political. It's, uh, having Twitter is almost like playing with a loaded gun. You, you know, you don't want to do it when you're, uh, uh, when you're not really on your game because you might tweet about the president or or a political situation none of that can happen. You got to be very cautious about what you tweet about. It's only feel good kind of things, nothing issue related. I did for a while send out tweets when we issued a, uh, released a case, an opinion, because I thought lawyers would be all about knowing that we decided a certain case. Turns out nobody was reading those tweets and they were getting less views than any other tweets, so I thought they don't care about that. Uh, they're, they're looking elsewhere for that information. So it's just sort of a fun Think that's something I have fun with. How
5: many followers do you have? Well,
3: I, after today, I'm going to have a lot more, I'm pretty sure. But uh, <laughs> I only have about close to 1,900. So I'm, I'm just, I'm not a big thing at Twitter, but I'm building on it.
5: So confession time, I have never tweeted in oh. <laughs> And uh, And while I did get on Facebook for a while so I could see pictures of my grandchildren, I had to use an alias, because the U.S. Marshals do not want federal judges on any kind of social media, but they have not yet found <laughs>
3: Well, Don Willett, uh, who was on the Texas Supreme Court, he was like the premier tweeter. He, he, his tweets were fabulous, and he had, I think, 50,000. He, he was the king of Twitter, and when he went, he went on the appellate uh, bench, shut it down. He, 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 he could no longer do it, which was a real loss to the Twitter world. Um, <laughs> but it's funny, when I go to conferences out of state, I, I run into other justices or judges who tweet, and we're all like a little fraternity. Uh, and We get hang out, take selfies, and tweet them. Um, but it, it's just a fun sort of thing to do that I think helps promote the judiciary.
5: You've never been to one of these workshops where somebody that knows security has taken just a phone number and in 10 minutes flat exposed the entire family the you know the, the links to ancestry.com the pictures of your children um, which is
3: why I think Facebook is so scary because I, yeah. I only use it to really just stalk my children and find out what everybody's doing in the family and also check folks from home um, but I don't put You know what I had for breakfast and I'll have my feet in the sand at the beach or whatever I'm very private on Facebook because and as students you need to know that because employers will look at your Facebook accounts and they don't want to see you drunk at a party or anything like that Uh, they'll look at your
8: Twitter accounts too (laughs) yes
3: yeah Um, so just you have to be I think social media is can be fun it can be useful but I think you got to be really careful when you use it
9: our next question is for Judge Daudry and Judge Clark. When you have a tough day, is there a moment or memory you reflect upon to, that reminds you that all of your hard work has been worth it?
5: Um, somebody asked me, set my office earlier this morning, and asked me uh, when and why I became a feminist. And I said, well, I think it happened back in elementary school when they said, girls can't do that. Um, And my attitude was, oh, yeah? You you think girls can't do that? Let me just show you what girls can do. Um, And that gripped me for a long time. So I have to say that uh, I was talking about anger a little while ago. what, what they were saying to my generation when we decided we, when we tried to go to law school, wanted to go to law school, you can't have it all. That was the message. You can have a family or you can have a career, but you can't have it all. And what, w- our response was, well, what do you mean? We're super women. We can do it all. We can bring home the bacon and fry it up and I've forgotten what the other lyrics to that was, wash the skillet. (laughs) Um, And what we found eventually was that we couldn't be superwomen and survive. It took a real toll. The anger was stressful. The superwoman image was stressful. And so um, when I have a tough day, um, I remember all that and reflect upon the fact that uh, we've grown up and we realize that we can't. Do it all and that we need help. Uh, Thank heavens, uh, thank heavens the attitude of uh, the young men and the husbands have changed. I mean, I'm always just knocked out by law clerks who are married to men who do all the cooking, for example. My husband could boil a hot dog and that was about the end of it. (laughs) He didn't even bother to, you know, butter toast the bun. And uh, so it the fact that we have gotten beyond that uh, is something that I can smile about and, and be
7: happy about. Uh, when I've had a hard day, uh, what keeps me going are, are the encounters, the, t- the times when people lift you up and they don't even really know that they are doing it. But it's a reminder that um, what you do makes a difference. And and you don't and you should be on your toes all the time because you never know when somebody's gonna look at you and see something that will send them either in a great direction or a bad direction because of what you look like in that moment. And so there are young women and men who come up sometimes and to say hello and they say, you know, I first saw you or I first saw your court at Girl state or at boys' state several years ago, and since then I've decided I want to become a lawyer, and maybe now I'm on my way to law school, um, and in part that was because I got to see your court in action. With apologies to my friends up here, because most of them have heard me tell this story probably more than once, but Professor McCall did suggest to me that there's a story she heard once that had an effect. And so I'll go back to that when it's an early occasion. Um, I was first, before I came to the Supreme Court, I was a trial court judge in a four-county judicial district in Tennessee, starting in 1989. And one of the counties was the county I lived in, Williamson, which is just south of here, and then three more much rural counties, more rural, Hickman, Lewis, and Perry County. there had never been a woman lawyer in those counties. Uh, there certainly had never been a woman judge. I was, I was the first uh, trial judge in, in those counties. And uh, many people said to me, you're probably going to have a hard time. They are harder than in Williamson County, where there already are women lawyers, and there is a woman General Sessions judge, and people are more accustomed to that. So very early in my career, I was um, conducting a trial in Hickman County. It wasn't the very first, but it was one of the first. And people appeared for jury duty, and they got called and, and put into the box and asked questions, and then lawyers get to decide whether they stay or go. And there was a particular woman who was called up, and it was clear she did not want to be a juror. And you can tell that sometimes about people, male, female, and others. They will give you too many excuses. I, I can't really do it because I have this. One of her excuses was, um, it was probably true, but I have a daughter in school, and I don't really have child care for her after school, and I would have to make special arrangements, and I don't like to judge people, and, and I'm not sure if I could you know, make a hard decision. Many different excuses. and It became clear to me that she wasn't going to be fair to the parties if she were forced to be on a jury, but that also if I just excused her, if I let her go, um, or if I uh, that uh, others were going to see that as unfair, because others had some hardships too, but they were not asserting them, and and they were uh, agreeable to staying on the jury if they were selected. So eventually we got to the point where it was time to decide, and what I finally said to her is, I understand your concerns about serving on jury duty, particularly your concerns about making a tough decision in this case. And, and so forth, and so I'm not going to require you to actually become a sworn member of this jury, but you do have to uh, complete your service in some way, and so what I'm going to require is that you stay with us today while the trial is going on. You may sit in the back of the courtroom, and you'll get the same breaks the jurors do for lunch and so forth, and when this trial is over, whether it's today or tomorrow, they will be excused and you will be excused, and you will have given us the service that we require, but it will not require you to make these decisions that you're concerned about. I could tell that made her very upset. Uh, She was not happy about that at all. Um, And it was, uh, uh, she, the rest of the day she rumped when she had to stand up or sit down and she obviously wasn't having a good time, and and when, when the day was finally over, the case was over. I dismissed the jurors and, and said to her, "You're free to go." To, you know, she made a lot of noise, gathering up her stuff and and um, walking out. And I knew that I had not made a friend that day. And, and as a brand new newbie, he was going to have to run for this job in less than a year. I, was, I I had no idea who she was, but what if she's the wife of some important person? What if she herself is is important somehow in this community and and we'll control all the votes. And, and I've made the worst enemy in the world the first day I've been here. Uh, well, the next morning, we had another case. And so the remaining jurors who had not yet served came in. And we started the same process over again. And I observed her, shortly after Court Begun, walk into the back of the room and sit down. And she had a little girl with her who was about 10 years old. And they just sat there. And they just sort of watched what we did. Um, we finished selecting a jur- the jury and took a break. and and the jury left the room and I couldn't help it anymore. I had worried all day about what she was doing there and whether she was going to accost me or whatever. And so I said to her, uh, "Miss Smith, do you mind coming up here for a moment? And she came up to the bench and it was just the two of us talking. And I said, I know that you did not have a good experience yesterday. Um, and, and I, I hope you understood that you, for, from my point of view, you completed your service. You're not required to, to be here today. But I'm just curious about why you came back. And she said, um, "No, I didn't really like you, uh, and I thought you were being kind of high-handed. But when you and, and you forced me to sit here the rest of the day, which I didn't like either. But as I did that, I got to I had to watch you. And what I discovered was I thought you were doing a pretty good job of telling those men what to do when." when they needed to and, and managing things and trying to be fair to both sides. And so I went home last night and and told my husband and my little girl, I want to go back tomorrow and I want to take my daughter. And I want her to see, and this, she said, in this community we don't have many women that are in charge of anything. And I wanted her to see that a woman could be in charge of something and could do that well and that that meant maybe, she could grow up and, and have more opportunities and do more things that she wanted to do. And, and that story stays with me, and um, it's still emotional for me after 30 years, because that made a difference to that woman, to that little girl. I never saw them again. Um, but if, if what we do still stands out because of who we are, whoever we are, and if doing something well means that someone else, it could be a little boy, a little girl, uh, somebody who is a different color from me, somebody who's a different ethnicity from me. But if the accomplishments of one person can inspire any other one person to think I can go farther and I can do better, that's a really important thing.
9: All right, at this time, I'm glad to hand it back over to Ms.
4: McCall.
2: All right. As we wrap up, we have one last question. This question is for all of our panelists again. Um, So we'll start over here with Justice Kirby and work our way across. But the last question is, if you could go back to college, is there any advice you would give yourself?
8: Uh, I would have more fun. (laughs) (laughs) I worked my butt off in college, and I I would say, just chill. It'll be all right. And I would
7: say, experience everything. Don't skip classes and stay in the bed because you're tired. Um, I did well in college, but there are so many times when I could have done more. I could have read more. I could have explored things more. Today, I'll come across a topic um, that I may have studied and I don't remember or I maybe never learned the basics that I should have. And I'm thinking, I had an opportunity. To learn that better earlier, and I skipped over it because I thought I could get away with that. And what I wouldn't give today, sometimes for the uninterrupted pleasure of taking a class going deep into a topic. And so, yes, have fun, and yes, understand that's the part of your life when you get to explore. Uh, Explore classes, explore extracurricular activities. Don't think about what has to go on your resume, but think about rounding out your life. You may never get that chance in the same way again. I would like to say something profound,
6: but I'm not going to because I had a great time in college. (laughs) I had a wonderful time. I did all the things I wanted to do. I studied. I got good grades. I went and studied in France for a period of time, learned the French language graduated at the top of my class at the University of Pittsburgh, drank beer. I mean, I really had a good time. So if I, I don't have any, would not have any advice for myself, I would do exactly the
5: same thing I did there. <laughs> yeah, I think that is pretty profound. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, I have uh, been out of college now For so long uh, that I can hardly see myself in college anymore. But I think what I would do is look at myself in the mirror and say, uh, just relax, it's going to turn out all right
4: in the end. So I guess I would say what Justice Holder said, right? So uh, originally she said she didn't look at her grades after the first semester. So I had written down last night, care less about grades and more about a broad base of knowledge and, and feeding your interest in developing new ones. But as she was talking, I thought the two things I should have done, which I didn't, and I don't think any college students make this mistake today, is I did not become fluent. Uh, some people would say I didn't become fluent in English, but I certainly did not become fluent in any other language. And my financial situation was not such that I could see the world travel abroad. And so many of my students now have been to places in the world that I've never been. So if you have the opportunity for study abroad programs and you're able financially to do it, I, if I had it to do over and I could figure out a way to finagle it, I would have gotten out and seen more of the world while in college. You know, we were all
5: French, right. mm-hmm. never
3: occurred to any of us study Spanish, and that pretty dumb. Yeah, I, took, I took French and Latin, Latin yeah. was also probably, yeah. uh, hasn't come in real handy uh, over the years. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really have many regrets about college, I had a really good time, I, I didn't really worry about my grades, uh, uh, and I, I, one thing I did that was right, I started Vanderbilt Pre-Med um, I went over to Vanderbilt Hospital to kind of go ahead and get it started and signed up as a candy striper. I literally lasted probably 30 minutes, and I hung up my uniform and hit the door. I I didn't like being in the hospital at all, so I decided, you know, to pivot and went back to the University of Tennessee, majored in business, because I figured business major, you can get a job with that. Um, And I was an accounting major, so everything was very black and white. And I did not have a real interest in the broad liberal arts education that Vanderbilt had offered. I thought I needed more specific uh, background. And in in hindsight, that I I wish I had taken more, uh, or taken a philosophy class, Mm -hmm. uh, taken more history. I wish I had a broader liberal arts background um, because. You know I'm playing sort of catch up on that now I read a lot of history and uh and I find that very interesting back when I was in college not so much I, I, I feel like there needed to be a purpose for what I was doing and I didn't see the purpose in those liberal arts classes and I think that was a mistake Thank you.
2: thank you again to each of our distinguished panelists for your willingness to share your stories with the students here this afternoon as well as with everyone who will be attending this evening Also, I'd like to thank our student moderators for your questions and participation.
1: Thank you for listening to this special edition of Tennessee Court Talk.